Good morning, everybody. My name is Ellen. I am an Alanonic. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know what that is or not, but it'll become clear to you before I'm finished here today. It's really closely related to um, an alcoholic, only I don't... Well, actually, I can drink. That doesn't give me a problem. I have all kinds of other things that give me problems. But anyway, I am so excited and thrilled to be here today. I always am so... I feel so privileged whenever I'm invited to speak anywhere. And when Karen called me a few months ago and um, invited me up here, I, I was thrilled immediately. I always am. I just get so excited. I, I love these conventions and roundups and where all of us get together. And I am glad to see this room full because when I leave here today, I'm going to have a little piece of every one of you in my heart. You guys fill me up and I can go and bring it back to my meetings and share it with my friends. And that to me is what it's all about, traveling here and there and meeting new people. And I even have some old friends that, uh, you know, from California. I met Bonnie a few years ago uh, at a retreat up there, and Sean's come to speak, and and um, all kinds of other people that I've met. And it's just incredible. And just like Karen said, now we have new friends. We're new friends. Uh, Karen and Betty picked us up the other day at the hotel, and after about three hours of trying to arrange our luggage in the car, because we way brought too much stuff, I had no idea what I was going to need, so when in doubt, just pack it all and bring it with us. So, <laughs> so Betty um, pulls up. The funny thing is, is one of my favorite cars whenever I see them on the road is a Jaguar, and I've never been in one, and I just think they're the neatest cars. And so Betty pulls up in one, of course, and here, I, and here's my chance to ride in one, except there's no room for me once my luggage is in it. So anyway, of course, Pat took over, and he was rearranging and rearranging and re-rearranging, and we finally got it all in, and Pat and I were in the back seat with a suitcase between the two of us, but anyway, we've got all kinds of clean clothes to put back in our drawers when we get home, but that's cool. But anyway, so Karen had called me a few months ago and invited me up here, and like I said, I was just thrilled, and and I said, oh, I, I didn't know how it worked here, if it was a luncheon speaker, a lot of them have, or you know, another part of the day. And she said, oh, no, it's it's on Sunday. And I said, okay, cool, that's cool. I like Sunday. And she goes, you'll be our, our spiritual speaker on Sunday. And I go, you're what? <laughs> spiritual speaker? And I was going, oh, Karen, you must not have ever heard my tape. <laughs> and she said, well, as a matter of fact, I have. And I said, well, okay, some of us are sicker than others, but I'll give it a wing. And then I talked to Pat, and I said, Patsy, uh, they want me to be the spiritual speaker on Sunday morning. I can't believe that. I, me, the spiritual speaker? And he goes, oh, you know, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. And I said, I, spiritual isn't me. I have a friend, and when she speaks, she's very, I mean, it just, it just floats out of her. You can see it. She's sweet, and she's quiet, and loving, and God, and all this Everything I think is spiritual, and, and I'm loud, and, and, and I'm obnoxious, and sometimes I swear. I have to really pay attention when I'm up here not to swear. <laughs> so I said, Becky, how am I going to pull this off? And he says to me, well, I can help you with that. And I said, you know what? I know you wrote my fourth step, but you are not going to read it to all these people. <laughs> anyway, he goes, no, 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 I'm going I'm to hook you up. You just wait. We're going to get up there, and I'm going to hook you up. Hold on. He made me a little halo. I think it's kind of crooked. I, I think it may be partly to inspire me, but it's 
Mostly to convince you guys. <laughs> you know, above and beyond all that, it's Easter Sunday, for God's sake. Can't you guys do this another time? Anyway, I'm going to take this off for a little bit because there's only parts of my story where I think I'm even allowed to come near it. <laughs> oh, gosh, I didn't even look at the time when I started. I don't want to be here till Edie gets here, gets ready. Anyway. Okay, on to the journey. I really like to have participation speaker meetings, so I always got to test you guys out a little bit before I get started to see if you understand me, if we're on the same page. So I want to share a story with you about a friend of mine. I stole it from her, told her I was going to, used it more than three times. It's supposed to be mine, but I still give her credit. Anyway, my friend Shirley and her husband Jim were going on vacation one day, and they're driving down the highway out somewhere. And Shirley sees this sign for a, a carnival coming up in the next town. And she goes, oh, Jim, 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 can we go to the carnival? And Jim doesn't say anything. And they just keep driving down the road. And they get to the town, and, and she sees the Ferris wheel right there. And she goes, oh, Jim, look, there's the Ferris wheel. Can we, can we go to the, to the carnival? Jim doesn't say a word, and they just keep on driving. And then there's a parking space, smack dab, right in front of the carnival. And she says, Jim, there's a parking space right in front of the carnival for us. Can we go to the carnival? And he doesn't say a word. And they go past that carnival, and they go out that town. And it wasn't but a half an hour later that Shirley realized she was the one that was driving. We spend our lives asking for permission to do stuff, and we're in our own driver's seat. Hello? That is a piece of what an Alanonic is. <laughs> anyway, it took me a long time to realize that I qualified for um, this. Oh, I got water everywhere. <laughs> anyway, uh, it took me a long time to realize that I qualified for this program, and I kept trying to figure out what it was that, that got me here. What the heck was the mix? I mean, other than the fact that I married an alcoholic, there was more to it than that. You know, we marry, we marry alcoholics, and, and if we divorce them or they die, what do we do, guys? We go out and we get another one. Okay, so and we can't keep blaming it on them. We're, there's something wrong with us. How did I get here? What is wrong with me? And I was in a uh, AA speaker meeting one day, and I was listening to this guy at the podium, and I know I've heard it a million times before, but it finally registered with me that day. And he was up there saying he wasn't good enough, he wasn't smart enough, he wasn't handsome enough, he wasn't enough. And I thought, wow, that's always the way I felt. And, and he drank to make himself feel better. Well, the drinking didn't get it for me, but hanging with the alcoholics did. I just hooked myself to their tail, and off I went. Only, you know, the alcoholic tries to fix himself. We think if we fix the whole rest of the world, then we'll be okay. So that's what we do. We just start going around fixing all these other people. And when, they're, when they look good, we look good. And that didn't work either. But I tell you what, I can prove that that is actually true, the way that works. If you were to take the 20 questions that they have for the alcoholic, and every place they have the word drink, you take that out and you put in the word think, we qualify. And this is, the, this is the list. I'm just going to read you a couple of these for um, how we qualify for Alana. Listen up, you guys. You might want to take out a pencil and write these down. Number one, is thinking making your home life unhappy? <laughs> is thinking affecting your reputation? <laughs> Have you ever felt remorse after thinking? Does your thinking make you careless of your family's welfare? 
Has your ambition decreased in thinking? <laughs> you know, I could think and sit in a chair. I had this chair in the picture window of my living room, and I could sit there for days on end just thinking, thinking, thinking. I had a rocker swivel, and I'd think, and I'd rock, and I'd think, and I'd rock. And, man, the thoughts that came out of my head. You couldn't even drink to get those. <laughs> okay. Does thinking cause you to have difficulty sleeping? <laughs> yeah, I was up at five this morning thinking about this today. Is thinking jeopardizing your job or your business? And this is my personal favorite. Do you think alone? <laughs> well, of course. I don't need anybody else. <laughs> I think quite well on my own, thank you very much. <laughs> Has your physician ever treated you for thinking? <laughs> Have you been to a hospital or institution on account of your thinking? And that is the one <laughs> that's the one that kinda upsets me a bit. We didn't get to go to thirty days of rehab. We didn't get to go and you know, make wallets and moccasins or whatever it is Doctor Paul talks about. What were we doing, guys? Dropping toilets, changing diapers, taking calls from the bill collectors. I'll pay you next week. Not, you know. <laughs> Listen to the relatives. What is going on in your house? And they're there making their moccasins. <laughs> anyway. So that list along with the fact that my social life revolved around the neighborhood tavern is probably what got me here. <laughs> and that is where I met the man of my dreams, my husband, Pat, right here in the front row. Wave to him, Patsy. They need to see who I'm talking about. Because I've got to, you know, people say, are you one of those Al-Anons that, you know, gets up and tells stories about the drug? Well, of course I am. <laughs> I mean, I do have some of my own, but geez, I, wish I couldn't make it without stories about him. But anyway, I used to go to uh, this tavern in Chicago. Pat and I are both from Chicago. That's where we met and married. And taverns are really big back there, little neighborhood taverns. And it was, it was just like Cheers, only not as nice. And um, we would go there and hang out with our friends. And, and we used to play softball for the, for the tavern. Uh, they had men's softball team and a women's softball team, and, and they would have parties in the bar where the liquor vendors would come and just throw out a spread, or they would have picnics in the in the forest preserves, and we'd all go to the forest preserves, oh, just have a ball. They'd have bus trips to Kaminsky Park, and we'd go watch the White Sox play baseball. And, and this was my life. This was our whole life. Our whole social life was wrapped around the tavern. And that's where I was one night with my girlfriends, and I, and I saw the man of my dreams across the room, and I, I saw him over there, and I thought, wow, this guy's kind of good looking. Put that on my list. And then I saw him bring out this wad of dough. He had this wad of dough, and I'm going, and he's rich, too. I like that. And then as the evening went on, I met him, and he was just an incredible amount of fun. He was just wild and crazy, and like I said before, he was everything I always wanted to be, and I just didn't have the nerve to do it. So here I am. He's good-looking, he's got money, and he's fun. Well, what more could a girl ask? So what did I do? But I took him home to my mother, much to her chagrin, <laughs> and announced that we'd get married. It wasn't that much longer that we did. But we uh, commenced this whirlwind courtship at the tavern, at Grant's Tavern on 95th Street in Oak Lawn, and we were uh, playing softball there, actually, and, and Pat became our coach. 
I don't know if you guys ever saw the movie uh, League of Their Own with Tom Hanks as Jimmy Dugan. That was Pat to a T. He was half drunk at our, at our practices and even more drunk at the games. And he would get up there and he was going to show us girls how to play baseball. Couldn't figure out why any of us were, but if girls were going to play baseball, he had to be the one to show us how. And so we used to go to the baseball games all the time. And in Chicago, we play with this 16-inch softball, and you don't use a mitt. So, consequently, we are always breaking our fingers. You know, if you catch that thing wrong, you snap it backwards. Or a lot of times we're dislocating them, and they're kind of going in another direction. And, and we'd be standing there going, oh, my God, my finger. And Ted would come over, and he'd look at it, and he's going, there's nothing wrong with that finger. It's just a little crooked, and he'd yank on that sucker. <laughs> Pop it back into place and throw us back out there again to play. For God's sake, you girls. And we'd be going, oh. But it hurts. And he's going, there's no crying in baseball. <laughs> Get out there and play, you babies, 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 babies. Nothing but babies. That's what he used to tell us all the time. We used to show up at the baseball games, and they'd be on the benches, and they'd all be in casts and crypt up, sitting on the side, you know. And so um, one day we were playing, and I was running for something, and I, I pulled something in, in my thigh. And, oh, my God, it hurt so bad. And I came in, I said, Patsy, I, I can't play. you got to take me out. And he says, well, I can't take you out. Look, you know, you're the only one left. Look at the bench. And they're all like, you know. <laughs> I think they'd stop on the way to kind of cast up. Just so we'd leave them alone for the day. And so he goes, you got to get out there and play. you got to go back out there and play. So I said, okay. I dragged myself out to right field and had to hold up the game. It took me so long to get out there. Finally, the game was over. And I went to work the next day, and I worked in a hospital. And saw one of the orthopedic guys there and he checked it out and I had torn a ligament in my leg. I had this uh, brace from my thigh all the way down to my ankle for months. I had to drag this thing around. I just, I couldn't believe how dumb I was that I was listening to him. But anyway, as things go, a few years ago, well, Pat was playing in a sober league uh, in California by us and a uh, few years in a few pounds past probably the time that he should be playing, but I ain't judging, I'm just saying. Anyway, so, <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, Betty said I'm thinking. So anyway, he's out there, he's up at the, uh, up at bat, it's the bottom of the seventh inning, it's two outs, they're winning by, or losing, sorry. <laughs> Remind the story. They're losing by, I don't know, a hundred to nothing or something. So Pat, you know, hits this ground ball to the shortstop. And he's got these dreams of grandeur that he's the gazelle he was at 21. Because he used to be pretty fast. And he's running. He's booking. He's going for first base. And, of course, the shortstop picks the ball up and throws it first, makes the play. And Pat had fallen. You heard something snap. Something snapped in his leg and he fell. And you could hear it snap all the way up in the stands. The ball comes in. You're out. And the whole place was quiet. Because he's laying there, obviously, in pain. And I thought, well, here it is. And I stood up and I said, get up, you baby! <laughs> There's nothing wrong with you, you baby! <laughs> now, mind you, the stands are full of all these program people. <laughs> and they were saying bad things about me. But I don't let that stuff bother me anymore because you guys taught me not to. <laughs> anyway, we commenced that whirlwind courtship at the tavern, at Branch Tavern in Oak Lawn. And one day uh, we were sitting around and Ted says to me, 
hey, how's about we move in together? And I said, oh, I can't do that. I've got this little Irish Catholic mother that would absolutely die. The thought of us living in sin together, no, no way. He goes, all right, you're right. A little while later, he says to me, well, why don't we just get married then? And I went, well, all right, hey, let's. <laughs> and that was like the basis of our marriage. Neither one of us had given it any thought at all. But I know in the back of both of our minds, we were going, won't that be a hell of a party? Oops, I'm swearing on Easter. Heck of a party. <laughs> won't that be a heck of a party? And it, and it really was. We, we had an incredible, incredible wedding. And uh, awesome, incredible reception that I remember most of and commenced our life together as man and wife, not really knowing. We had no idea at all what the heck we were doing, but we thought it sounded like a good idea at the time. We got this little apartment. We had no furniture. We had nothing. We It was stupid. I don't even know why we did it, but we... Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, the party. I forgot. Anyway, so we got together, and, and we were we were having this uh, little uh, family together, and we decided, um, well, maybe we'll have a baby. So a year after we got married, we did have furniture by then. And we decided uh, it was the bicentennial year in Illinois, in, Illinois in, in the United States. And uh, it sounded like a good idea that New Year's Eve that we give birth to a bicentennial baby. Where we got that at, I don't know, but we decided to fly with it. So New Year's Eve, we went with it, and, and uh, we woke up the next day, and we're going, do you think? And we're going, nah. And then September of that year was our bicentennial baby. And I went to the hospital, and I, I gave birth. I gave birth to our son the future quarterback in Notre Dame. Pat's an avid Notre Dame fan, and, and he just knew that his sons were all going to play football at Notre Dame. I suppose that would be like the equivalent of being Wayne Gretzky, if you guys still like him. Do you still like him? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, here I am. I'm in the hospital. I, me, just gave birth to the future quarterback in Notre Dame, and I am thinking I am something. And so here it was. I stayed in the hospital a couple of days like we did back then. And it was the day to come home from the hospital. And I got up and I got dressed. And, and I sat on my bed and I was waiting. I was waiting and I was waiting and I was waiting for the father, the future reporter at the Notre Dame, to come and pick us up. And we waited and waited and waited and he didn't come. And the nurse came from the nursery and she brought my baby and she said, you've got to go home. And I said, but, but I'm waiting. And she said, well, wait someplace else. But you're not waiting here anymore. <laughs> So they handed me this baby in the T-shirt he had in, in the nursery and the, and the diaper and uh, threw in a blanket to boot. And this is the way the future quarterback in Notre Dame started his life. And my mom came and picked me up and went home. And uh, we got to the house and Pat was standing on the front porch with, with this look that I grew to see for years. And he was confused. He missed something and, and he didn't know what it was. And I said, Patsy, how could you do this? How could you not come to the hospital and pick up your baby? And he said, he said, E, I'm so sorry. I, I am so, so sorry. I went out last night to celebrate. I was so excited over this baby, and I overserved myself, and, and, and I don't know what happened. And then he said to me, this is the participation part, guys. He said to me those magic words that I just clung to every time I heard them. He said, and I promise I'll never do it again. Who's with me? Yeah. 
And it was just like one of the speakers said this weekend. You know, when, when they make these promises, they absolutely mean it. Absolutely and positively mean it. And then, and then something happens and, and the promise is gone. And it came to be that way in our house, that it was a series of promises like that. And, and so I, I thought, actually, it wasn't a conscious thought, but I, I started to cash in on that kind of stuff because when Pat would do those things, when he would do the awful of the awful, he would get what he always called the fumes and he would feel really bad. And so I would take advantage of that. And I had a list that I used to pull out. It was pre-printed, actually. Every <laughs> every place I wanted to go, everything I wanted bought, everything I wanted done in the house, and I would take that sucker and I'd stick it on the refrigerator and everything on there was as good as done. Guilt, remorse, and incomprehensible demoralization will buy you a lot. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I miss it today. <laughs> He hasn't done a damn thing since. <laughs> but I'll tell you how closely our minds work together. We live in this house right now that's, I don't know, 28 years old, and, and things are starting to break, and, and the cabinets in the kitchen are, are falling apart. The drawers are. And we have this one drawer in the kitchen that the back just sinks down like that. It's our junk drawer. It's like this big. And I've got a lot of very important things in there. And I went in there one day, and I pulled the drawer open, and he goes, what are you doing? And I said, well, I, I need a pair of scissors out of the junk drawer. And he goes, I just stacked the Tupperware in the back to hold up the back of that drawer. What are you, what are you going in there for? So now, because our drawers sink in the back, right now there isn't a stitch of cabinetry in there, because instead of fixing the drawer, we just ripped the whole thing out. <laughs> and now we're getting new cabinets this week. But anyway, that's the way, that's how him and I live together. We think like, you take this little teeny tiny thing and you blow it into something absolutely huge, and then it gets unmanageable. But then the job is to manage it, yank it back in. Anyway. So where are we? Oh, yes, we're back to bringing the baby home from the hospital. And he had said that to me, the part about he promised he would never do it again. And as the years went by, I just didn't understand. I didn't understand what made him do these things back then. I didn't understand blackouts. I didn't understand their inability to, you know, to follow through on a promise. And it, re it reminds me of a story about a friend of mine who lives down in Laguna Beach. And she was down at the beach one day with her kids and, and her son came up to her and he had found a, uh, a lamp in the stand and he goes, Ma, look at what I found and it was really pretty and she thought, this would be really nice in my kitchen. So she started uh, cleaning the lamp off and out comes a genie. And the genie says to my friend Linda, I will grant you one wish. Anything your little heart desires, you can have the wish of your dreams. And she said, oh, I absolutely love Hawaii absolutely love Hawaii, but I hate to fly and I'm afraid to go. If you could build me a road right here from Laguna Beach straight out to Hawaii, I'd be the happiest person in the world. And the genie looks at her and says, what are you kidding me? Do you know how deep the ocean is? How, what kind of pilings I'd have to do to, to make that? that? That's impossible. That is absolutely impossible. I will give you any other thing in the whole wide world. Anything you want is yours, but I cannot build you a road here in Laguna Beach, out to Hawaii. So she thought for a second, and she said, you know, my husband's an alcoholic, and I would just love to understand the mind of an alcoholic. If you could do that for me, I would be the happiest person in the world. I don't know what makes him think. I don't know what makes him do things. If I could just understand the mind of an alcoholic, please. So the genie said, will this be a two-lane or a four-lane highway? <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, back, back to the reality here. So here we are, we've got this little baby boy, and we're commencing our life in Frankfurt, Illinois, which isn't too far from where Jim lives, our speaker Friday night, which was really kind of funny. That was, that was really neat seeing somebody back from Illinois. But we started uh, living our life, and, and, and things started getting progressively crazier. They were getting out of hand. And then uh, Pat, when he speaks, says he, he developed this allergy to alcohol, that when he would drink, he broke out in spots all over the United States. He <laughs> he'd go out one night and he didn't know where he'd end up or, you know, if he'd come home, when he'd come home, where he'd come home from, he would just wake up in places. And, and, and I just didn't understand the blackouts and things got crazier and crazier and crazier. And every time these things would happen, I would pack up the kids, get all their clothes, go to my mom, stay there for a few days. He would call me up, say he was sorry, never happened again. I'd get out the list, pack it on the wall, it would be done. (laughs) It took me a while to get here because I understood that life I had. We all had a role. We played it well. And, 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 and in between time, I kept saying to him, Patsy, what is wrong? Why, why are these things happening? And I, and I tried to help him. I tried to help him, teach him, guide him, mold him, bend him, shape him, anything, just to make him behave. And this became my life. And so um, we'd be going out to a wedding some night, and I'd say, hey, Patsy, that's really a nice suit you got on tonight. I hate to see you throw up on it. I want you to back off on the drinking a little bit. Or, um, you know, we really don't have the money for the drugs. You want to back up on the drugs. I was always trying to help him. It was only under the guise of helping him that I did these things. And and then one time he took a he went to uh, to work one day and and uh, decided to come out here to Cal or not here I'm not in California I forgot out to California to uh, for work and um, but he neglected to um, tell me or ask me or file the right papers or I mean anything we, he just got in the car one day and he called me from Oklahoma and told me he was on his way to California. So um, anyway, they, came, they didn't make it all the way out there and decided to come back, and, and Pat had called me, and he wanted to get back together. Guilt, remorse, and comprehensible demoralization. You know, gee, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. I had the list. Only this time I had an addition to the list, and I said, okay, when you come home, Patsy, we need counseling. I don't know what's going on in this house. It never, ever occurred to me that we had a little bit of an alcohol or drug problem in our house, and I was a little bit on the insane side, and the whole place was combustible, but we're going to go to a counselor, and we're going to get ourselves together. So... I don't know if people in this room have been helped by counselors or not, but if there was a rotten bunch, Pat and I seemed to find every one of them. And the first one, the first one that we went to, she says to Pat, Pat, what seems to be the problem here? And then he says, well, I just don't know. I come home from work sometimes. And there isn't always dinner on the table. (laughs) And and I come home from work sometimes, and the house is a mess. And the kids are crazy, and I don't know what to do. Cunning and baffling. So the counselor turns to me, and she says, Now, Ellen, do you think you could promise Pat that you will cook dinner every night? And that you will make sure the house is clean. And that you will keep the kids in line. And now, Pat. 
if Ellen does these things, do you suppose that you could stay within the confines of the state of Illinois? <laughs> and Pat goes, oh, why, yes. <laughs> and I was like, I was livid. I was livid. I paid that woman the $5 copay I had to, and we got in the car, and I said, we are going home, and we are nailing that white picket fence up, damn it, and we're going to get this family together if it kills both of us. And I'm driving. I'm driving the car. And he's going, okay. Whatever you say, just get me home. I got home. I got my list. I tacked it up in the refrigerator. And we went back to our guilt, remorse, and incomprehensible demoralization. Because I understood that. I don't understand this counseling stuff. I just wanted to get together. And I was going to do it by sheer will. This is what I have now. I was going to do it by sheer will. Hate and anger and sheer will. Causes guilt, remorse, and incomprehensible moralization. That I can deal with. <laughs> so I commenced to dogging that boy as much as I could. I was going to toe the line, pull him in, keep him on the straight and narrow. You know, you can't let him out of your sight. You know, out of your sight, out of sight, out of mind. That's what some people say. It's out of sight, out of state for Pat. You're not going anywhere. He used to go to bed at night. He'd wake up in the middle of the night and, and get dressed and leave. I mean, what is up with that? You're already in bed. It used to make me nuts. And then when he got sober, he used to wake up in the middle of the night. And, I, you know, I would wake up and I would see he wasn't there. And immediately my mind would go back to the way it was. And he was downstairs in the kitchen cooking brownies. Because he had this sweet thing for a while. I don't know about the rest of it. Anyway, as things went... They didn't get any better, we, but I, I couldn't seem to find a solution, and I, good God, did not want to come here. I wanted nothing to do with Al and I, and I did not want him to go to AA. If he went to AA, we can't go to the tavern, we lose all our friends, we have no social life. Oh, I can't believe the social life I have today, but this is what I thought, and I was not going to go sit in the dark dank basements of those heathen churches watching these old women knit swapping chicken recipes and telling me what I should do to make him come home. I want to know part of that. That's, that's what I saw as Al and I. And I just thought that they were going to shake me up so that maybe he'd want to come home. And I thought, well, that's the biggest bunch of hooey I ever heard. Of course, I never heard it. I made it up in my own head. <laughs> Why? Because I am an Al Anonic. <laughs> I just have my own brain to say, that can send me places. So, anyway, as things went, he uh, took his last and final trip, same MO, went to work one day, called me like a day later, and uh, he was in Las Vegas. He calls me up, he goes, E, it's me. I'm in Las Vegas. And it's over. And I go, it's over? Excuse me, it's over? You are dumping me? How are you are dumping me? How did that happen? That's like having the worst job you've had your whole life and you don't even have the pleasure of quitting and they fire you. So I said, fine. You want it to be over? That's just fine with me and I'm going to the lawyer today and I'm going to take you for everything you got, buddy. I'm going to clean you up. And so that's what I did. I went to the lawyer that day and I said, I want a divorce, I want it quick, and I want everything. And the lawyer says, okay, what do you got? <laughs> well, 
behind in the mortgage, all credit cards like crazy. None of the utilities are paid. I don't know why we had lights or anything. And, uh, you know, I'm working this part-time job, past working when the weather approves and, uh, and when he's in town. And, um, you know, and who is paying bills? When drinking and drugging is the life, who is paying bills? And, and, and I mean, and I was right along with him with that, too. I mean, I still wasn't thinking that drinking and drugs was our deal. So anyway, uh, as it turns out, I filed the papers. And I went on my steady diet of hate and anger just grew and grew and grew. I was really a lot thinner then. When I'm happy, I guess I look it. But anyway, so, and my life had turned awful. It just turned awful. And I had this little part-time job at a doctor's office that I basically did just to have something to do. My kids were little then, and it paid my babysitting, gave me a little pocket money, gas money to get there. And, and now we weren't making the bills on the two of our salaries and here I'm going to make it on these on this and uh, Pat had really really left this time he, he was serious he took off and he was gone and I had decided it was different this time I didn't pack my kids up I didn't go back to my mom's house I was going to stay and I thought you know what you've got to get yourself together here and learn how to take care of yourself you've got to find a solution to this thing I don't know where it is but you're gonna and that's what I decided to do and all my days came filled with phone calls from the bill collectors wanting their money and I, I was uh, learning how to lie really well to these people and I'd be talking to one thinking what did I tell him yesterday and what am I going to tell him tomorrow and I know there's another one coming and I'd get up every morning and I'd get these two little kids by then we had two kids I'd get these two little kids dressed and fed and out the door and of course they looked good when they went out the door but inside my house I was dying I was absolutely dying I tried for some governmental agencies to give me a hand because I just couldn't I couldn't live I couldn't pay these bills I couldn't do anything. And, and, and you know, it's, it's demoralizing to sit in these offices and, 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 and beg, beg, beg these people for money, and they say no. And then I had to go home and, and try and, and pay these bills and feed these kids and take care of everything. And at night, all this stuff, all these thoughts that were like a tornado, a whirlwind up in my head all day long because I was busy, they'd all fall on me at night. And I was depressed. And I was alone, and I was afraid, and I was angry, and I was hurt, and I was just a million things, just a million different feelings that I never knew I had because I denied them for years. I didn't know what to do with them, and I would lay in my bed at night, and I would think if I could only check out of here. I didn't really want to die, but suicide looked pretty good to me. I'd seen it in a movie years ago where this guy was describing it, and he said it's like floating out in the water and you're hanging on to a log and you don't really want to let go of the slug and drown but geez you know your arms just hurt so bad you just want your arms to stop hurting and that's the way I felt my heart hurt so bad that I just wanted to stop for a little while and that seemed to me to be the only way that that was going to happen was just to check out of here I didn't care about anybody else or anything else I had just become totally consumed by the problems that I lived in and a ways down the line here, uh, Pat had uh, moved from Illinois. I was still living in Illinois, and he finally made the trip and made it all the way to California. And a while after that, through his own story, he had uh, come to a, a hospital out in Palm Springs, Desert Hospital in Palm Springs, and they started calling me. They wanted me to join the happy family of Al-Anon. And I said, what, are you kidding me? I'm rid of them now. Life is great. Woohoo!" <laughs> 
you're not a bill collector, are you? <laughs> you don't want money, do you? But anyway, this woman kept calling me all the time, and she'd say to me, Ellen, how do you feel? Ellen, how do you feel? She used to say that all the time. Ellen, how do you feel? Have you been to an Al-Anon meeting? No, I haven't been to an Al-Anon meeting. I don't have an alcoholic in my life. Life is fine. Leave me alone. <laughs> I'd hang up the phone, and she'd call me again. And then finally one day the poor soul called me up. And Pat had been doing some kind of cathartic writing at the hospital. Some of his moccasins, he got into writing. But anyway. <laughs> and she says to me, Ellen, how do you feel? And I said, you want to know how I feel? I'll tell you how I feel. So I went and got this 17-page letter. And I said, you just got this letter in the mail. thought you might want to hear about it. Dear Ellen, you always, you never, you wouldn't, you couldn't, you shouldn't, you didn't. And she goes, wow, that's awful. How do you feel? Awful. I think I feel. Page two. Page two. <laughs> and I went through page. I went all the way down. And, you know, and this isn't, let me tell you a story on this. It didn't happen this way. It happened that way. And I didn't do this. He and he, 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 and he always. <laughs> you guys have seen him, haven't you? Yeah, that's me. They used to tell me to be quiet a lot when I started going down. But anyway, that's another story. So anyway, so I'm going through the 17-page letter. I read through the whole thing. I, at the bottom of every page, she'd say, Ellen, how do you feel? How do you feel? There was not a piece of me in this whole conversation I was having with her. And I got to the very bottom of the page, of the letter, and she, and she says, how do you feel? I had nothing of his words left to read anymore. So I said, how do I feel? I told her, I'm afraid. I'm alone. I'm scared. I'm hurt. I'm angry. I'm all these feelings. And I didn't know what to do with any of them. And she said, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Every time I told her another thing, she said, yeah, I know. And she said, tell me a little bit about what's been going on in your life. And I started to tell her. And, uh, ooh, in the meantime, I forgot to say, well, I'll tell you. I started telling her a little bit about what was going on in her life because there wasn't any people in my family. There wasn't any of my friends that I could actually tell everything to. There was enough nonsense going on that these people saw, and they would give me that look like, oh, God, how could you be so stupid? How did you get yourself into this? Why can't you get yourself out of this? What is wrong with you? And that's the way people used to look at me all the time. And I told this woman a little bit, and she really didn't say anything bad. She just said, tell me some more. And I told her a little more, and I told her a little more. And before you know it, I told her absolutely everything. I told her absolutely everything about what was going on in our house and in our life and in my God-forsaken mind. And you know what? I started to feel better. I felt a little lighter. And as time went on, I found out one day, while Pat was still gone, that I was pregnant. don't even know how that happened, but it must have been some of that guilt, remorse, and incomprehensible demoralization I was paying for. I don't know, but anyway, I turned, it turned out I was pregnant, and I'm in the depths of all this stuff. I can't pay my bills. I can barely feed my kids. They're ready to take my house away, and now I'm pregnant. And so here I was. As we go through these stories, there's a, there's a line that we have of what we think is right and what we think is good and how we want to live our life. And something comes along and we cross that line and we cross that line and we cross that line until little by little by little we just give our whole self away. It's just like they say, you know, if you put a frog in a boiling pot of water, he'll jump out. But if you put him in the, you know, pot of tepid water and you turn up the heat and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter, he doesn't even know any better and he stays. And that's what we do. We don't even know any better. We just regroup. I thought 
thought I was a resilient kind of a person, you know. Okay, this is what's going on. Well, we'll just shift it a little bit. We'll regroup a little bit. I can, I can take care of this. And when it got to the very end, there was absolutely nothing of what I had come into life with left anymore. And I found out I was pregnant. And I decided, this kid's got to go. I've got two kids I can't pay for now. I don't have a job. And I cannot have a third one. And to me, only for me, abortion just is not an option. It never, never, ever was. And I just, this is where I lost my mind. I crashed and I burned and I hit the bottom. I can't get a job. I was having a hard time finding a full-time job as it was. I can't get a job when I'm pregnant. And how am I going to take off work to have this baby and still feed these other two? Nobody's going to pay my bills. And I never made any kind of money that was going to pay for daycare for three kids. And that's when I decided this kid's got to go. And I just was totally, totally insane. Every bit of peace in me that had ever been there was totally gone. And then I, I, I realized that this is what was happening to me because I had considered taking the life of someone else just to make mine easier. And, and that's when I pressed and I burned and I hit the bottom and I decided I can't do this anymore. I need help and I'm going to find it. And I'm going to keep this kid. And I gave birth to him 19 years ago. He is the absolute joy of our life. I mean, the other two are too, but he is the absolute joy. He is our baby born in sobriety. He has never seen the alcohol in our house. He's never seen the... Well, he's... Well, you just see some crazy stuff, but <laughs> not as bad as the crazy stuff used to be. But, you know, you guys told me that I could do this when I finally got here. So I ended up uh, joining Al-Anon and, and, uh, and making some new friends there and, and changing my path and my head. And Pat had gotten sober out in this hospital in California, and he came home, and, and, I, and I saw it. I saw it in his eyes. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's the most incredibly awesome thing. He had dabbled in AA before, you know, in and out and in and out and trying to manage things here and there, but, but I could see it in his face. He just had a new life for life, and, and, and we decided we were going to get back together again, and we were going to have our family, and we were going to join these programs and stay there, and that's what we've done. Uh, you know, come this fall, we'll both be here 20 years. And, and, it's, and I'm not saying that to brag because it's not a lot of time. I, I hang with a lot of women that have twice that and more, but it's that this has become our life. You guys have become our friends and our family, along with our family. I mean, our families are so wonderful, but you are all part of our families. And it's Easter Sunday, and where are we? Where are we, guys? We're all here together, and that's what we do today. So, um, anyway, I joined these groups, and I have the most incredible friends today. If I sneeze, there's five of them at the door with Kleenex in hand, and a sixth one behind them with a pot of spaghetti. They're just everywhere, you know. This is what we do for each other today. We're here to care for each other. You guys tend to my heart like I tend to yours, and, and it's just as if it was our own. And, and that is what we learn here. And when we're here long enough, we, we see miracles. And I have seen the most incredible miracles that I never even saw before. Things used to blow by me. I drive down the street today, and, and there's the most gorgeous blue sky in front of me, and I see that, and I go, hey, nice job, God. Good deal, buddy. You did good. And this meeting, I, one meeting I go to on Thursdays is in a park district building, and it's all windows, and it sits in a park, and there's trees and horses go by, and it's the most incredible thing. And I go, hey, nice job, God. And every Thursday, these kids come by, these special education kids, and they um, are there to help 
clean the grounds and they drag out these rakes and they drag out these hoses and they and they have their little rubber gloves on. And as a matter of fact, last Easter, I remember the Thursday after Easter, they still had their Easter bonnets on and they can and and they are smiling and they are happy and they're just full of life. And I look at these people and I say, Hey, nice job, God. Because you know what? They're not looking for the bigger house, the better car, the smarter kid, the better athlete. They're taking what God gave them and they're they're happy with what they have. And they and they laugh and they and they just enjoy life. <clears throat> About a year and a half ago, we had to put our, our dog down. He got sick and uh had cancer and as a matter of fact, you know, it happened when we were on a trip, a friend of mine was watching the house and my son and every time I leave something happens and her claim to fame is last time she killed my dog. But anyway, <laughs> um I really, really missed him, and I and I love my do- I love dogs. So I commenced on this. Uh, uh, I was going to look for another one, and I was checking all the websites, looking at the dogs that they had, and I had in my mind what I wanted. And I you would stop by the pounds and wouldn't see what I wanted. And one day I went there and I saw him. It was him. It was him. He was this scruffy-looking little terrier thing. He had this kind of hair that stuck out all over, kind of like Bonnie's. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but it was the cutest thing I ever saw. And I, I snatched him up and I brought him home. And I'm going to everybody, look at this dog. Is he not the cutest thing you ever saw? I neglected to notice, however. He had been on the streets for quite a while. So he was about 15 pounds underweight. And, and he hadn't been eating well, so half of his hair was kind of missing. And he actually really had no personality at all, but I just thought he was the coolest thing I ever saw. So, so I bring this dog home and I'm telling everybody, isn't he the cutest thing you ever saw? And they're just looking at me. It was the same look I got when, when, when I brought Pat home. I mean, they're just... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but the thing I liked about this dog was that he was standing in this cage and his tail is just a slow wag all the time. Just happy. He's happy to be. And and I see him in the house now, and he, you know, his tail's always going. He gets, it goes faster when he's happier. But some days I catch him standing in the living room all by himself. He doesn't know anybody's there. Nobody's looking at him, and the tail is just wagging. He's just happy to be there. And I and I think to myself, God, I've been doing this program for a long time, and I want to grow up, and I want to be Charlie. I want to stand in a room, and I just want to be happy to be, you know. And I want my tail to be wagging all the time. That's that's what I want out of life, and that's what I come here, and that's what I get from you guys to be just like Charlie. I don't know, maybe Charlie, maybe Charlie came back, and he maybe he was in the program. I don't know what Charlie's story is. But. Anyway, I realize that if I stay around here, I ha- stay around here because I need to, because I am never going to be well, because my alanonic head still thinks, and and that uh, reminds me of the story of <laughs> my ring story. Anyway. We were married 25 years a few years ago, and, and, and Pat bought me a diamond ring after I suggested it. But, you know, you guys told me to speak up. <laughs> anyway, I love my diamond ring. I get up every morning, I brush my teeth, and I brush my ring. Because it's going to shine. If I wear it 25 years for this sucker, I'm going to clean it every day. And, okay, every day Pat says, you know... You ought not to be cleaning that ring over that sink. I bought that for you, and you're going to drop it down the sink, and you don't take care of anything. And I just go, shut up. I'm cleaning my ring. I waited a long time for this, and it's going to shine. It's just going to shine. And he's going, but, you know, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. So anyway, 
One day, I'm cleaning my ring over the sink, which is the sink that's in the same old house that has the drop drawer. So, of course, there's no supper in the sink. And so I'm cleaning my ring, and it slipped out of my hand. And it starts bouncing around the sink and bouncing around the sink. And I'm trying to grab, trying to grab, trying to grab it. And I don't hear it anymore. My ring went down the sink, and I was like, <laughs> I went downstairs, and I went outside, and I got one of those big, long barbecue forks, and I'm digging in the sink trying to get this ring. All the while, in the back of my head, you know what I'm hearing. <laughs> I'm digging, digging, digging. That didn't work. I went to the closet, and I got out a hanger, and I opened the hanger, and I'm digging in there. Couldn't get it. I'm out in the garage, and I get myself a pair of clines, and I'm trying to open the sink, trying to get it open. This is a 25-year-old sink. It's not going anywhere. So I had to do the one thing I absolutely didn't want to do. 911 Pepsi. And I'm like, Pepsi? I dropped my ring down the stairs. <laughs> you what? <laughs> How many times did I tell you? And uh, do you know how much money? Ah, uh, I paid for it. Ah, uh, I bought that for you. And you ruined everything. And you ruined everything. And you, 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 And I said, I don't care. Just get home. He was still in town. He hadn't left for work yet. So he comes home, and of course, he gets the barbecue fork because I don't know how to do these things, and he's digging in the sink, couldn't get it. He got the hanger, digging in the sink because I don't know how to do these things. And here's a good part. This is why I like you to look at him. So the next thing, you know, Pat was all dressed up um, in a suit because... He is lineman turned businessman now, so he's all in the suit. And the next thing you know, I've got my back to him, and I turn around, and he's in nothing but his jockey shorts and his black socks, and he's under the sink with the with the clines, and he's going, I can't believe you did this to me. <laughs> to him, I, I did this to you don't ever, and anyway, so that didn't work. So the next thing you know, he's got a hacksaw, and there's a little black sock sticking out from under the sink, and the hacksaw's going, and he's going the whole time. And so he saws through the sink and, and swings it open, and, and he says to me, and this is why I come all the time, he says to me, are you sure you saw that ring go down the hole and into the sink? Because I'm moving this pipe here, and I'm not hearing anything. He's still under the sink, and I'm on top, and I'm going, well, of course I heard that ring go down. I saw that ring go down the sink. I'm moving everything on the sink, making sure it's not still up there. Because if it is, I'm dropping that sucker down. <laughs> you don't think I listened to all that grief for nothing. <laughs> anyway, as it turned out, the ring was neatly in this sludge and he took it out and of course he cleaned it then because I can't <laughs> but we did get a new sink out of it so you know I got a new sink so now when I clean my ring I pull the drain I lay in a towel I shut the door I put the dogs outside I don't answer the phone nobody talks to me and it has nothing to do with the fact that I like the ring <laughs> Anyway, I just love it when Pat doesn't get to talk. We, we just did a convention together in uh, Washington, and uh, whenever we speak together, we always um, discuss who goes first. Because if, if I let him go first, he takes up all the time and I don't get any. 
anyway, so we're, we went to this convention uh, in Washington, and, and they asked him to speak on Friday night, and me on Saturday, and he's going, ah, I'm going peace. <laughs> I still got an hour the next day, and I got to rebut everything he said, the poor thing. <laughs> anyway, back to my miracles. So, my biggest miracle of all, God has given me so many miracles, and I just, you know, I, I, I eat them up like crazy now. Now I'm to the point where I'm looking for them. I've, I've got a new grandbaby. Have you ever looked at the face of a new baby? I could watch it for hours. The, the, you know, the expressions on their face are, are incredible. I just, there are so many little things that I see in life today. But a few years ago, I had the biggest miracle of all, and if I never have another one in my life, I'd be satisfied with this one. Anyway, my mom who is my most favorite person in the whole wide world. My dad died when I was a kid, and I, my grandparents were long gone. I never even met them. So my mom was my mom, my dad, my grandparents. She was absolutely everything to us. I have three sisters, and, and we just thought that she walked on water. She was the most incredibly awesome person I ever met in my life, and she's the one who made it possible for me to, to catch on to this al program because she has a faith in God, a faith and trust in God that I rarely see. So she called me up one day, and she said, Ella, I've got something to tell you. And I thought about it for a long time, and it's okay with me. And I said, sure, Ma, what's up? And she said, well, I've been diagnosed with lung cancer, and they're giving me six months to a year to live. And I immediately fell apart. I was unconsolably crying for me, not for her, for me. Well, we ended the conversation, and the next Saturday she called me up because we talked every Saturday. And she said, okay, Al, this is the way I see it. You and your sisters are invited to live with me for the next six months to a year, but you're not dying with me and I'm not having it. And I said, okay, Ma. I took her lead like I always did, and I spent the most incredible next ten months of my life. I was, she was still in Chicago, and I was living out in California, and I went home for a lot of visits, and I talked to her on the phone constantly, and I just I ate her up. I just just enjoyed everything I could and when it got to the end she uh, was having a hard time taking care of herself because she was um, she was living alone and so I decided I was going to leave my job I took a seven weeks off work and went there to take care of my mom and my family never even questioned it because this is what you guys teach me I was going home to take care of her heart and at that time I was going to take care of mine too so I, I went there to stay with my mom and, and I just sat on the couch and sucked up stories and just ate her up. And, and, and in return, I, I cooked her dinner and I cleaned her house and just, I, I got the better end of the deal. But as things go, my mom is not perfect. I, none of us in this room here are perfect. And my mom had this teeny, tiny, little, teeny, little flaw that used to make me nuts. But my mom grew up on the south side of Chicago and my mom was prejudiced. She did not like people of color, and it was something that her and I argued about all the time, but she just could not see her way to liking people of color. So God, who I do believe is the biggest jokester in the world, decided that he was going to do something about that. <laughs> and when my mom needed someone to come out and, um, and help her with a bath and everything, he, he what does he send? But he, he sends my mom a black lady. And my mom was mortified. This woman would come in the house and she'd strip my mom down to nothing to give her a bath. And my mom would just sit there, you know, thin-lipped and pissed off and just there, you know. I, I, I truly believe my father never saw her naked. And here's this strange woman 
that she doesn't like washing her. And and Dolores came, I think, like five times a week and would give my mom a bath. And, and Dolores was the most loving, the most kind, the awesome. She was there doing God's work, and she knew my mom hated her, and she didn't even care. She just came in and was singing and was sweet, and she was nice. And they would be in the kitchen doing the bath, and I'd be sitting in the living room, and I'd start talking um, to Dolores, and uh, we started this conversation. And, well, my mom was like a little kid. We're not having a conversation that she's not getting into. So she started getting in on the conversation. And then, as time went by, after uh, they were done with the bath, Dolores would come, and we'd move into the living room, and my mom and Dolores would sit there, and, and they would talk, and, and they, they grew to become the best friends. And I, and at the end of the seven weeks when I had to come home and my mom was going to move in with my sister for the last few weeks because she was beginning to get really weak, Dolores came for that last time. And when she was leaving, my mom had tears in her eyes because she was going to miss her new friend. And I saw right in front of me that God had done for my mom what she couldn't do for herself. And now she was free to go because that was the only thing that she had in her way. That little piece of hate in her heart was now gone, and she could die, and she could go to heaven, and and you know, and be with God. And I just sat there and watched the whole thing, and I I never would have gotten that if it wasn't for the teachings that you guys give me. So it wasn't but six or seven weeks later that my mom did pass away. And I went home, and because of you guys and because of her, I went home and my heart was light because I know that my mom went to somewhere that I'm going to go to eventually. I know I'm going to see her again. We might not all be going there, but uh, <laughs> she's going to give me a reservation, I'm sure. But um, I went to my mom's funeral, and I gave her a eulogy, and we laughed our ass off and we cried and we had fun and I left that church that day smiling because I knew that this was God's plan. When we fight God's plan, that's when we get the short end of the stick. But when we go with it, except for the end result, my mom dying, it was the most incredibly spiritually awesome experience of my life. To be with someone who is on their way out is... Ten times better than birth. It's just the most awesome thing in the whole wide world. And I would have missed it if it wasn't for you guys. And I just am so thankful today that I'm in this program. And the longer I'm here, the more miracles that I, that I get. I see that my time is running out. So there's just a couple of things more that I want to say. Next weekend is our AFC convention, Allen and Family Group's convention. It's a really big convention out where I live. And I was going to it a few years ago with some friends of mine. And we were uh, looking at the, the um, not the one day at a time, the uh, Courage to Change for that day. And somebody was reading out of it. And it said in there, I used to wake up in the morning and say, good God, it's morning. And now I wake up and I say, good morning, God. And that is the gift that I've gotten from you guys from being here. There's a reading also that says, uh, though you may not... Like us all, you'll love us in a, in a very special, you'll love us in a special way, the same way we already love you. And you guys taught me how to love myself when I didn't even know I was supposed to. And you taught me how to love my kids when I didn't even know how. And you taught me how to love the alcoholic when I, good God, did not want to. Woo! Anyway, I want to close today with a prayer. And thank you all again for having me. Anyway, if you guys will. Dear Lord, so far today, God, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, 
haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. And I'm very thankful for that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to be getting out of bed. <laughs> and, from, and from then on, I'm probably going to need a little more help. <laughs> Thank you so much.